Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. have a Bible, would you please take it this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are continuing our study of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and we're in chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 17. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 to 17. The year was 1952. A young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. So writes one author. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer, She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather on that particular morning was foggy and chilly as she set out. And she could scarcely see the boat that would accompany her. For 15 hours she swam. She begged to be taken out, but her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore wasn't far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming and was pulled out. The boat made for the shore and she discovered that it was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a news conference saying, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out, but I think that if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and swam the distance. I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And beloved, here this morning in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul In essence, he wants to make sure that these struggling, suffering, shaken Thessalonian believers can see the shore. He wants them to see where they're going. He wants them to see where they're swimming. In other words, you you might say he wants them to fix their eyes on the certain, unshakable future hope they have in Christ. If you remember Paul in both his first and second letters here to this church, he's writing to persecuted believers. He's writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith in Christ. And not only that, we saw also last week, if you remember, that these Christians are also off-balanced. They are shaken in mind, they are unnerved, 
And in essence, they're in danger of losing sight of the shore. And Paul, he doesn't want them to get off course. He doesn't want them to give up. No, he wants them to be strengthened. He wants them to be steadied. He wants them not to lose heart. And in order to do that, Paul gives them here in this letter this vision of God, of of, of who he is and of what he has done for them and who they are and where they're going and their destiny and their eternity so that they won't give up, so that they won't lose sight of where they're headed. And church, that's exactly what he wants to do for you and I here this morning as well as we face uncertain times, turbulent waters, the difficult days in which we're living that can lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of worry and instability about the future. And he doesn't want us to lose sight of the shore. And he wants to give us here this morning an anchor for our souls so that we can stand firm. Let's see it together. If you have your place there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me invite you to stand out of honor for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. If you remember, here in chapter 2 now, Paul is addressing a situation. He's addressing a concern that's going on in the Thessalonian church. Now, generally speaking, he is thrilled with this church. He's thrilled with their maturity in Christ. He's thrilled that they're growing in faith and love, that they're remaining steadfast and persevering in trials. He's thrilled. But there is, however, a problem. There's a problem going on in this church in chapter 2. That's one of the reasons why He's written a second letter to them. So what's the problem? Well, if you remember, these Thessalonians are being influenced by a false teaching that the return of Christ has already happened. The second coming has already taken place. See that in chapter 2, notice in verses 1 and 2. Notice there at the end of verse 1, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind, literally shaken from your minds and alarmed. That's what's going on. Shaken and alarmed about what? Well, notice there in verse 2, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this teaching that the second coming has already happened. So then in verses 3 to 12, Paul writes to ensure them that Christ hasn't come yet. The second coming hasn't happened. Why? How do we know this, Paul? Well, because he tells them two things haven't happened yet. Notice there in verse 3, he says, the rebellion, this great apostasy, this great falling away must come first. That's the first thing that must happen. And he says, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And these two signs, Paul says, will signal that the end is here. So don't be alarmed, he says. And then, notice in verses 3 to 10, he goes on to describe in detail this man of lawlessness, this, this climactic, end-of-the-age, antichrist figure who would come, who's going to lead this great rebellion, this apostasy prior to Christ's return and lead many in the church to fall away. And then, notice this frightening scene, verses 11 and 12, where God, in judgment, will hand over these people to his deception. Verse 11, God would send a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. They're going to be sucked in by this man of lawlessness because, verse 10, they don't love the truth. But verse 12, they have pleasure in unrighteousness. So this deception, it's, it's an issue of the heart, not the head. They love their sin. And Paul reminds them, these two things have to happen first. Now, several of you came up to me after the service last week. And you, you didn't ask okay, who is this man of lawlessness and is he, is he here yet? And I appreciate you not asking those questions because I don't know the answer to those questions. I can't tell you that. But several of you did come up to me after the service and you said, Pastor, that's a bit unnerving. That's, that's kind of terrifying. Leaving you, perhaps, unsettled in mind. And in reality, that's the exact situation that's going on in Thessalonica. They're unnerved. They're unsettled. And it's the exact opposite response that Paul, pastorally, is aiming for here. He doesn't want them to be unsettled. He doesn't want them to be shaken in mind. So what does he do? What does he do so that they won't be unsettled and shaken in mind. He does two things in chapter 2. The first thing, notice there, we saw verses 3 to 12. He wants to remind them that God is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over history. That everything is going according to God's plan. It's going according to His timetable. For example, notice in verse 6, God is sovereign over when this man of lawlessness is revealed. Right now, he's being restrained 
ultimately by God, but there's coming a day God himself will lift the restraints. He, he is sovereign over when he's revealed. Or, look there, verse 8. God is sovereign even over the destiny of this Antichrist. Verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth by the appearance of his coming. This is absolute sovereignty. This is no contest. All Jesus has to do is breathe on this guy and he's gone. So first he wants to remind them, don't be shaken because God is sovereign over history and he's sovereign over the end. But there's a second thing here now in verses 13 to 17. There's something else he wants to remind them of so that they won't be shaken, so that they won't be alarmed. And he not only reminds them God is sovereign over history, but he also wants to remind them he's sovereign over their salvation. He's sovereign over the salvation of his people. So Paul wants to provide them stability. These saints who are shaken by current events. And he does so by giving them here a good dose of the sovereignty of God. (laughs) You want to know what the remedy, the medicine is when, when you and I are unstable and everything around us seems to be shaken? Paul says the remedy, what you need, is you need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Where everything is going, you need to see the shore. And here he sees, we see he's sovereign over history and then he's sovereign over their salvation. He wants them to look to God. He wants to give them this greater perspective and it's meant to strengthen and stabilize them. In fact, notice here, I'm not sure if you realize this yet, we arrive now in verses 13 to 17 at the very first commands in this letter. You realize that? Up to this point, there have been no commands. There have been no imperative verbs. Paul hasn't commanded them to do anything yet. But here now, notice in verse 15, we come to the very first commands, and there's two of them. Look there, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. That's command number one. And second, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. See those two commands. Stand firm and hold on. Verse 15, notice, begins with that phrase, so then. See that? Or some translations may say, therefore. So really what Paul is doing now is he's summarizing here everything he's been saying. Which means, I think, that verses specifically 13 and 14 show us how to stand firm and hold on. How can we be sure that we aren't shaken in mind and alarmed? Look there, verse 15, command number one. So then, brothers, stand firm. This would be the opposite, then, of being shaken in mind in verse 2. So Paul wants them to be stable, he wants them to be confident, he wants them to be calm, he doesn't want them to be thrown about and worried and anxious by false teaching, by current events and the latest news headlines. No, he wants them to stand firm. 
Okay, how do they do that? How do we stand firm? Well, look at command number two, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. Okay, how do we do that, Paul? And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Traditions, meaning the apostolic teachings. In other words, the gospel. Hold to the gospel. Either by... Verse 15, our spoken word, meaning when we were with you in Thessalonica, Acts 17, or by our letter, and I think he means there 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, both of them. In other words, they stand firm and they hold to the word of God. The gospel message. By clinging to the promises of God when all around our soul gives way. But in the context here, I think specifically, hold to what he's just told them in verses 13 and 14. So Paul wants them in verses 13 and 14, as well as everything he's just said in chapter 2 and even back in chapter 1, to be a stabilizing force when they're feeling unsteadied. So what does he remind them of? What what are they to stand firm on? What are they to hold to? Here it is. The sovereignty of God in their salvation. And there are several things in verses 13 and 14 that Paul wants to remind them of in order to steady them. And then, in verses 16 and 17, he turns and prays specifically for what he's just reminded them is true of them. So two headings, very simple, I want you to see this morning. First, I want you to see the thanksgiving in verses 13 and 14. And then second, the prayer in verses 16 and 17. So first, notice with me this morning, Paul's thanksgiving in verses 13 and 14. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time here on point one. Notice Paul's thanksgiving. Look there, verse 13, it begins with this word, but. See that, but, which draws a contrast between the group Paul has just described in verses 10 to 12. Remember, those who are perishing, those who are condemned, those who don't believe and love the truth and take pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So this is them, but we thank God for you. So in other words, your end, Thessalonians, isn't the same as their end. So see that contrast there. Verse 13, notice Paul again is giving thanks here for these believers. Oh man. In fact, verse 13 is is almost identical to his opening Thanksgiving, if you notice back chapter 1, verse 3. And it's also similar, if you remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. In fact, in both of these letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he begins with thanksgiving, and then he also pauses here midway in each letter again to give thanks. And church, it was just a reminder to me this week that as you read the letters of Paul, What leaps off the page over and over and over again is Paul's gratitude. His gratitude for these churches, his gratitude for God's work in them, 
and that he never gets tired of the gospel. He never gets ho-hum about God's saving grace. And what I think here is a challenge for us that we would impress on our souls daily the wonder of the gospel and never let it become mundane. No, verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God. And that's what he's doing here. And what does he thank God for? Well, look there verses 13 and 14. In essence, he's stressing God's sovereignty in their salvation. God's work. So this, this Thanksgiving is, notice, not only directed at God, not at them. He's not congratulating them but directed entirely at God's sovereign, saving work in them. And Paul wants to remind them of this because he wants them to hold on to this so that they will stand firm. So, listen. The sovereignty of God in salvation is not a doctrine that divides us. It should be a doctrine that gives us security and stability. And Paul reminds them here of four things that he wants them to hold on to about their salvation and God's sovereignty in it so that they can stand firm and not be shaken. Four truths. Notice them with me. Truth number one, they are loved by God. Look there, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. So why should they stand firm and not be shaken? Verse 13, because they have been eternally beloved by God. Human love may be fickle, may be unreliable. God's love is completely certain. It is unshakable. Or look in verse 16, not only are they loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are also loved by God our Father. This is a Trinitarian love, notice. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 16, and God our Father who loved us. Now, the love that Paul has in mind here isn't the generic love that God has for all. There is a sense in which God loves all people. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Yes, there is a sense in which God loves all people. He loves the world. Yes, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. No, this love that Paul has in mind here in verse 13, notice, is a specific, particular, saving kind of love. For certain people. It's a specific love. And the reason we know that is because of what Paul says next. Look at verse 13. Beloved by the Lord because God chose you to be saved. So this is an electing love. This is a particular, specific, saving love. Which, by the way, is always the way the doctrine of election is described in the Bible. 
This is an electing love. Which means that the doctrine of election isn't some kind of cold, calculated, abstract choice by God. No, it is rooted, our election, in love. We are beloved by God. He chose to set his love on them. Which leads to truth number two. Not only are they loved by God, they're chosen by God. Look at verse 13. Beloved by the Lord because, here's the reason, God chose you as the first fruits. So why were these Thessalonians saved? Out of all the Thessalonians there, why these? And in verse 13, Paul says, because God chose them. What is the ultimate reason? What's the ultimate explanation for their salvation? Because God chose to save them. So if we were to ask Paul further, okay, well, Paul, was it, was it because they were more inclined to God than the other residents of northern Greece? And Paul would say no. Okay, well, is it because they were more noble and they were more worthy and they had more good works piled up and ethically they were more, you know, upstanding? And Paul would say, that's not the reason at all. Oh, well, is it because they were more sincere? No way. So, Paul, what's the reason? And when Paul answers that question, notice, he looks away from the Thessalonians. He doesn't find the reason at all in them. No, he locates the reason in God. Verse 13, because God chose you to be saved. Why did he choose you? Because he loved you. And why did he love you? Because he chose to love you. That's the answer the Bible gives. So what is the doctrine of election? It's often misunderstood. Here it is. It is the loving, merciful decision of God to grant salvation to certain undeserving sinners. Who otherwise hate him, would never accept him. He isn't reaching out to those who are reaching out to him. No, it is God mercifully, lovingly saying, Though you are running from me, I am going to turn you to myself in saving grace. Why? Because I chose to set my love on you. Oh, church, feel the particular electing love of God for you. Not because of anything you have done, but owing only to his grace and his love. This was all his doing. This was all his sovereign will. There's a great illustration of this. If you want to turn there with me, it'll be up on the screen for you as well. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here, Moses is addressing the second generation of Israelites who are about to enter into the land and he's teaching them about who God is and who they are and what God has done for them and what he's going to do for them and in doing so what he's doing here is reminding them of their background he's reminding them of their biography 
Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his, oh, notice this beautiful phrase, treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not, so he's going to tell them why God didn't choose them, it is not because you were more in number, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why did he choose you? Because he loved you. And here in verse 13, Paul lays down the ultimate reason that the Thessalonians were saved. And if you're a believer here this morning, the ultimate reason you're saved. And notice, when did God do this? When did he choose you? Look at verse 13 again. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. Now, that's the way the ESV translates it, first fruits. And you probably, I would bet, see a footnote in your Bible of another translation. Because this is actually a very debated passage among scholars as to how it should be translated. The New American Standard translates it like this. God chose you from the beginning. So is it the first fruits or is it from the beginning? And I, I personally think that translation from the beginning is probably a better translation because there's greater textual support, but also because it seems to fit the context better here, I think, as well. So notice when did God choose us? Well, Paul says, from the beginning, meaning from before creation itself. In eternity past. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Notice here, he's speaking here of the, the sovereign choice of God for Jacob and not Esau and Paul says this in Romans 9:11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, meaning it wasn't based on anything in them. God chose before they were born, before they had done anything good and bad, in order that, here's the reason, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. From the beginning. So church, just, just step back with me for a moment and, and just see here Paul's larger pastoral aim. Why is he telling him this? These believers are suffering persecution, chapter 1. They're unsettled by false teaching, chapter 2. I mean, he's just described this man of lawlessness, this great rebellion. He's just told them many people are going to be deceived and fall away. <laughs> There's this great delusion that's coming but in the midst of all that, he wants to remind them, God loves you and God chose you. Why? You may be anxious over events, you may be shaken, but put your mind, put your heart at ease because you're secure. Stand firm, hold on. They're chosen. 
Truth number three. Look there. Truth number three. They're saved by God. They're saved by God. Look at verse 13 again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So verse 13, Paul is reminding them here of their salvation. Now the question becomes, what salvation is Paul talking about here? What, what, what salvation does he has in, have in mind? Because the Bible often describes our salvation in three ways. Or three, you might say, stages. We have been saved, past tense, right? At the moment when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, you are justified before God forever. At the moment of salvation, when you believe, you have been saved, past tense. We are being saved. It's a present tense reality as well. God is, God is saving and keeping us by his power that's at work in us now. It's a present reality. But there's also a future reality when we will be saved. Future tense. From final judgment, when, when Christ returns. So salvation is past, salvation is present, and salvation is future. Okay. So what then is Paul talking about here? And it seems to me that Paul has in mind here our future final salvation. So this isn't our past salvation. This isn't even our present salvation. This is our future salvation when Christ returns. We will be saved on that final day. And there's two reasons based on the context why I think this is future salvation that Paul has in mind here. First of all, notice that the whole context here of chapters 1 and 2 are the end. <laughs> the return of Christ, right? Verse 11 and 12, he's just described the end for unbelievers. They're, those are perishing. He says they're condemned. But verse 13, but he's now describing the end we're believers. So they, unbelievers, will be receiving judgment on that day, but you won't. Verse 13, you are to be saved. God is going to deliver you from future, final judgment on that day. That judgment that's coming on those who are deceived by the Antichrist, that's not going to come on you. So the whole context here is the end. But the second reason I think he's talking here about future final salvation is because, notice that phrase in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain glory. This is, this is future glorification at the end when we will, we will be glorified on that day, may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that being saved in verse 13 is the same as glory, future glorification in verse 14. So all that to say, I think Paul has their end salvation in mind here. 
on that final day. But then, look at verse 13. He gives two means by which they're saved. Or another way to say it, two ways that God will see to it that they reach the end and they're saved. Look at verse 13. First, they are to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And number two, through belief in the truth. So the first means in which God is going to get them to the end, look there, we are saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, sanctification. Sanctification can refer to something that happened in the past at salvation. We were sanctified, we were set apart, we were made holy, we were made pure when we were saved. But again, I think Paul has something future in mind here. What is sanctification? Well, we saw this repeatedly, if you remember, in 1 Thessalonians. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what is sanctification? Here it is. Fancy Bible theological word. It simply means becoming progressively more and more like Jesus. Being made more holy, more pure, more more righteous, more set apart from sin. And Paul is saying here, it is the path through which we reach final salvation. Meaning, if this sanctification doesn't happen in your life, you're not going to attain final salvation. You're not going to reach glory. You must be sanctified in order to be glorified. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 describes it this way. Look what it says here, Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So notice, striving for holiness here. Not striving, you're not going to see the Lord. Meaning, you will not be saved in the end if you don't grow in holiness. If you aren't experiencing the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. No, no. When the Spirit of God comes into your life... Through faith in the gospel, you are justified, made right with God, declared righteous. He doesn't lie dormant in your life. He sanctifies you. Or James chapter 2. Look how James 2 describes it. James 2.17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So works, notice, James says, are the confirmation, they are the evidence that our faith isn't dead. Our works, they don't justify us before God, but they do justify that our faith is real. So sanctification confirms saving faith. That's what Paul's saying here. 
So faith is the means by which we're saved. We, we embrace Christ. We cling to Christ. We, we, we lay hold of Christ by faith. That's very foundational. And in that initial act of saving faith, we are justified. We're declared righteous by God forever, cleansed from sin. But verse 13 through sanctification means that sanctification confirms that faith is real. And brothers and sisters, that is a necessary confirmation in the end to reach final salvation. If you don't have it, your faith is dead. And so then, how does that happen? How, how can we be sure that saving faith leads to sanctification? Well, look at the second means there, verse 13. Through belief in the truth. Verse 13, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and, notice, belief in the truth. So as we, look at this, as we trust God's Word, as we, by faith, rest in the truth, as we believe, as we treasure, as we hold on to the promises of God, the truth, we're sanctified and we will be glorified. Now the question is, why is Paul reminding them of that here in 2 Thessalonians 2? Why does he want them to know this? Why does he want them to be reminded of this? And I think the reason is because, yes, we have a part to play. We have a role to play in this. Belief in the truth, notice. We gotta believe. But ultimately, it's God's work in them. Because look what he says there in verse 13. Saved through sanctification by the Spirit. So we don't sanctify ourselves. This isn't self-sanctification. This isn't sanctification by works. This is sanctification by the Spirit, God's sovereign work in us. So we hold on, we believe the truth, and as we do, the Spirit, by means of the truth, is at work sanctifying us. Oh, that's so important. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We read it earlier in our service. Paul says this. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will glorify. So if God has justified you, Christian, the Spirit will make certain that you are sanctified and glorified. Nobody drops out. Nobody falls through the cracks. So stand firm and hold on because he's holding on to you. He will hold you fast. He will keep you. You will be sanctified. And you must be sanctified to reach the end. Fourth truth, finally. They're called by God. Verse 14. To this, this final salvation through sanctification by the belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So not only did God notice choose them from the beginning, he determined to set his electing love on them, but there was a moment in time when he called them. Verse 14, he called you. And how did he call them? Through what means? Notice verse 14, he called you through the gospel. So if you remember, Acts chapter 17, Paul comes to Thessalonica, he preaches the gospel there, and God called them to salvation through the preaching of that gospel, through our gospel, Paul says. If you remember, he describes it for them like this over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because, so here's the evidence of their election, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He called you. This is what theologians call the effectual call. Meaning this, this isn't the external voice of some preacher where he calls them audibly. This is describing God's inter- internal work through the Spirit. And this call, it isn't something that a person may or may not respond to. You know, just take it or leave it kind of thing. No, no, no. This is an irresistible effectual call that works in someone's heart drawing them to Christ wooing them to Christ sometimes call this irresistible grace changing them opening their eyes giving them faith to believe that's the effectual call and Paul reminds them of this here notice to help them stand firm and hold on Because if God has chosen them from the beginning and he's called them sovereignly and he's sanctifying them, then he will glorify them. And his electing call is meant to provide them with security. So they will see the shore. (laughs) But then notice, after giving them these two commands in verses 15 and 16, which we already looked at, Verse 15, giving these two commands. Look at verses 16 and 17. He turns now to pray for them. And in this prayer, this blessing, it aligns specifically with what he just told them and his main concern for them in this letter. Heading number two, notice finally, Paul's prayer. Look there, verse 16 and 17. Paul's prayer, Paul's blessing. And church, isn't it fitting Isn't it fitting that in our passage this morning that is all about God's sovereignty, it's all about his saving work in us, isn't it fitting that he's going to end now with appealing to prayer? (laughs) So he's acknowledging we can't do this on our own. No. Spurgeon says everyone's a Calvinist when they pray. We all have this theology, God must do it. He is sovereign over all. His will be done. And that, that's what Paul's recognizing here. God must do this. And yet, at the same time, he uses our prayers. So as those who believe in the sovereignty of God firmly, 
not only is to not pray disobedience, he's commanded us to pray, but God sovereignly uses our prayers to accomplish his ends. So prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes. How does that work together? I don't know, but it's true. So Paul concludes then in verses 16 and 17 with a prayer, and in summary, Here's what he's praying. He's praying that God would do in these Thessalonians what he's just reminded them of in verses 13 and 14 and commanded them to do in verse 15. So everything God commands, he enables by his sovereign grace to do. Notice three things very quickly here about this prayer. Number one, notice, just notice his address. His address. Who does, who does Paul address here. He's not addressing the Thessalonians. Look at verse 16. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. So notice that believers who are trusting in Christ are in stark contrast to the unbelievers described in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 and verse 7, the Lord Jesus is going to inflict vengeance on his adversaries, their persecutors. Chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord Jesus is going to kill the man of lawlessness. But those who are in Christ by faith, verse 16, he loves us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And beloved, this is only possible by the cross. This is only possible because Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to bear the wrath of God, the vengeance of God against your sin on your behalf for you. And now everything is different. But also, look there, verse 16, because we are united to Christ by faith, we now have this, notice, intimate relationship and access to God, our Father. He's our Father. Knowing that whatever our Father wills for us is best. However shaken, however unsettled they may be, our Father's will is the best for His children. So when he wills sickness, it's better than health. When he wills weakness, it's better than strength. When he wills persecution, it's better than ease. When he wills valleys, it's better than mountaintops. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask him. That's who he's addressing. But then notice second, his confidence. What does Paul know to be certain? Well, look there. He's certain, first of all, verse 16, just notice this this high view, this high Christology, this view of Christ in his prayer, verse 16, now may the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus himself and God our Father, who, singular, loved us and gave us eternal comfort. So Paul's offering this prayer to Jesus, notice, alongside God the Father. So clearly, clearly sharing here, notice, Yes, distinct personhood, but paralleled authority. I mean, this is deep. This is deep Trinitarian stuff. But what is he certain of? Look at verse 16. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So he's certain of three things. He's certain that we are, notice, loved by God. God loves you. He's certain that we have eternal comfort 
knowing that we have peace with God now forever. And third, he's certain of good hope through grace. Hope is always described, by the way, in First and Second Thessalonians as this certain hope we have when Christ returns. So Paul is confident of this beautiful vision of eternal glory and everlasting life and joy and hope in God. And he's praying that it would give us comfort, eternal comfort, now in the present for suffering saints. And then just notice not only his address and his confidence, but notice finally his request. What does he ask for? Verse 17. That God would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We're going to see more of what that means in chapter 3. But don't forget where Paul began back at the beginning of chapter 2. They are shaken. They are alarmed. And he prays they would understand the sovereignty of God. They would understand his love for them. That he will finish what he started in them. That they would hold to the promises of God so that they would Notice, be comforted amidst trials and established in every good work. So that's his thanksgiving, that's his prayer. So let me just close then, if I could, with one application. You can see countless, I think, I hope. But let me just close with one that I think gets at the root issue here and one that I think is very timely. Church, in verses 13 to 17, they're very helpful. This is a very practical passage on how to battle anxiety. How to battle and wrestle through fear and worry. I mean, that's what's what's going on here with these Thessalonians, isn't it? They're they're shaken in mind, they're alarmed. Verse 2 Verse 17, they need to be comforted. And my guess is that many of us in this room are in the same boat. There there may be some free spirits in the room who aren't, you know, bothered by anything. That's not me. And I'm willing to guess that's not the majority of you as well. And, And you too are unsettled, you're alarmed by many things, you, you're needing comfort, <laughs> just like the Thessalonians. And, and I get the, the sense that Christians today, at least the ones I know, are deeply troubled. They're troubled by the rapid secularization of our culture. They're troubled by the liberal agenda. They're troubled by the LGBTQ movement that seems to be everywhere today. They're they're troubled by current news headlines. They're troubled by world events. They're troubled by nuclear weapons and world wars and school shootings and terrorists. They're troubled by what's going on in Washington. They're troubled by what's going on in their own home. And it's leading to anxiety, worry, uneasiness about the future. And so what is it that will steady you when all around you is sinking sand? What is it that you can use to fight those struggles of fear and worry and anxiety? Brothers and sisters, the answer in verse 15 is you stand firm on the promises of God. You believe 
the truth and you hold on and you don't let go. Meaning, we meditate on God's assurances about our eternal comfort and good hope. Assured about the future. That everything God has promised will come true. Sort of like, I visualize it like windshield wipers. This, this mud of anxiety, unbelief, fear, worry, instability in this world, it, get, it gets thrown on the windshield of your heart and your mind. And, and it becomes darkened and it becomes cloudy and you can't see. And what we need are the windshield wipers of God's promises so that it clears away the mud and we can see clearly. And that happens, verse 13, by the Spirit and belief in the truth and by prayer that God would enable us to see these realities. So that we can see the shore. So what are the promises of God that you need to cling to today? Maybe it's something here in verses 13 and 14. Maybe it's something he said earlier in chapters 2 or chapter 1. What, what ways do you need to be reminded of God's sovereignty over history and over even your eternal destiny so that you don't lose sight of the shore? Let's pray. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.